So I think that's one of the main things is giving up power, giving up control. But these very powerful institutions refuse to do so because then it would mean that I would have to address my own bias, my own racism, my own sexism. Now it's more personal. Now we're talking about how you might cause harm to people, how you might hurt people. And that brings up feelings of shame. Hi there, and welcome to this special episode of the podcast, What Are You Going to Do With That? on microaggression in academia with an even more special guest, Dr. Broderick Sawyer. He is the expert who will be helping us understand what microaggression is, how we could respond to it, and how to heal after experiencing it. I am Dani, I'm your host, and I'm a PhD candidate trying to learn from other early career researchers on how to go about my academic journey by listening to their stories and sharing them with you. This episode, however, is slightly different, as we will hear short testimonials from five peers who experienced microaggression in academia. Dr. Sawyer will help us understand what happened in each situation and give us advice. This idea was inspired by a similar episode on Nadaj August podcast called What the Fockery, that our producer Ido has listened to. He thought it was such a great way of dealing with this very important topic of microaggression that we should do the same thing relating to the academic world. So thank you, Nadaj, for the inspiration. And you can all find the link to the episode um, that will be available on the show notes. Now, let me first introduce you to Dr. Broderick Sawyer. Broderick obtained his master's and doctoral degrees from the University of Louisville and is currently a clinical psychologist in Connecticut with a specialty in race-based trauma and healing. Dr. Sawyer has written a variety of peer-reviewed articles and book chapters on mental health disparities and now is in the process of developing a race-based trauma clinic. In terms of daily activities, Dr. Sawyer sees individual therapy clients, serves as a teacher and mentor, and provides speeches and a variety of workshops. For more information, head to his website, brodericksawyer.com. Welcome, Broderick. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm doing pretty well. Doing pretty Good well. to hear. I have to say that I'm so glad that you're with us today because I definitely need backup when discussing this important topic um, because I don't actually know that much about microaggression. While I pour myself my signature drink, Amaretto, that I already showed you, (laughs) would you care to explain what microaggression is and maybe also what it is not? Mm. Mm. What it is and what it is not. Um So when we think about microaggression, we think about a small aggression, right? So small aggression is still aggression. So when we think about this just in one in one dynamic, so uh, my specialty is in race-based stress and trauma, but uh, microaggressions can span across other oppressed identities, uh, such as uh, for the queer community, uh, for women, um, and for, for a variety of other things. So when we think about microaggression in terms of of race, um, it's essentially uh, something like a like a put down, but it's ambiguous. And the difference between someone walking up to me, a black person, and just calling me the N word, right? That's like I'm I hear that and I'm like, okay, like that person is definitely racist. I'm sure. I know to stay away from them. I know that I shouldn't trust them. To, to really care about me, I know that, right? 
the difference between that and a microaggression is maybe I'm at work and I'm uh, I'm a PhD, I'm a doctor, maybe I'm the only black doctor at my clinic. And then I notice that, um, you know, administration is maybe leaving me off of emails that they might otherwise uh, put a doctor on. So, so that, right? So now, if I understand that there's such a thing as unconscious racism, and that's really the space of microaggression, it's unconscious racism a lot of the time, then... So as people were maybe choosing who to who to have on the email or different things like that, it's just, okay, hmm, well, who's a doctor here? Uh, this person, that person, and that person, right? So they think maybe, oh, black person, not a doctor, right? And that's a very subtle sort of thing. So they didn't notice that they did that, but now I'm on the receiving end of feeling maybe put down. Maybe I feel nervous. Like, oh, did they, did I do something wrong? Maybe I feel sad. Maybe, oh, I guess I'm, you know, not on the same level as the other white doctors in the clinic. Oh, maybe, you know, oh, maybe it's nothing. You know, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. But you see how many different possibilities that introduced? That's where the stress is for microaggressions. That's where the stress is. It's not knowing whether or not People are being aggressive towards me. That ambiguity, now I'm like sitting at home and when a guy calls me an N-word, he called me an N-word. Whoa, man, that sucks. Now I know what it is. I feel angry. I feel sad. I can now say, okay, I'm going to process my emotions based on this bad thing that happened and then never trust this person again. But when I'm, you know, white people are smiling in my face, you know, and being otherwise nice, Right, so they might pop into my office. Hey, buddy, how's it going? Da 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 da. da. How are you doing? Da 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 da. da. Um, but then when they commit these smaller acts of aggression, it's like, whoa, hold on a second. Can I trust you or can I not? So we can't really appraise the threat appropriately, and that essentially uh, increases the cognitive load on our minds to figure out who can I trust and who could I not. Right. So that's a very dangerous situation to be in because now I'm in danger of internalizing the messages that I'm sent. So I'm looking to people who are unconsciously being racist towards me for letters of recommendation, for approval. So if I want a promotion, if that's like a if that's like a um, something that gives me approval, validation, like in my job. If I don't understand microaggressions and I don't understand unconscious racism, if I don't get uh, that uh, promotion, then I might feel like, oh, no, what did I do wrong? Maybe I'm not as good. But if you just understand um, and before, you know, before our call, right, um, or before we started recording, um, we talked about how uh, for a woman, for example, Women may know generally that, okay, like if it's, um, and this is the unfortunate reality, if it's 2 a.m. and I'm in a parking garage, that's dangerous for me as as a woman, right? We accept that um, that patriarchy exists, uh, sexism exists, rape culture exists. We know all this stuff, so then we don't enter into those situations, right? Um, So similarly, if a woman is in a room full of men, we have to understand 
that those men will act out on their sexist conditioning, whether consciously or unconsciously. Those are the subtler things. And we think rape versus microaggression, right? Like one of those is obviously larger and more harmful than the other. However, microaggressions, I like to compare them to mosquito bites. So if you keep getting mosquito bit again and again and again, over time, it chips away at your self-esteem and you start to internalize those negative beliefs about yourself. It's kind of like the difference between like overt domestic violence, like overt overt, and sort of subtly like chipping away at someone's self-esteem. Like, oh, you know, a man saying something like, oh, you're so pretty. You don't need to eat that. You don't need love handles. You're just so beautiful. Do you see how subtle that is? But a nut, it's like, wait, was it this or am I safe or am I not? And so a microaggression is very much um, in that way. Oh, Broderick, you're so well-spoken. You're so... Are you surprised that I'm well-spoken? Wait, hold on a second. What else did That's you think? That's where the anxiety Yeah, exactly. Goes. I heard that one before. Mm-hmm. Thanks for bringing it up. Um, so through these examples, um, I, I think I understand a bit better what also the most difficult parts about microaggression are. Because on the one hand, we have a sender um, who doesn't actually know or at least unconsciously is causing harm. And on the other hand, the other difficulty is that the receiver doesn't really know what would be the appropriate way to respond. And like you said, if that happens over and over and over again, that can be really harmful. Yeah, so the other important piece here to understand is power. It's power. The sender has more power just overall. So if a uh, if a white person, for myself, um, commits a microaggression, right? And then I confront them. And then I say, hey, you know, that thing that you said made me feel this way or that way. One they may not know that they did that unconsciously, number one. Number two, they don't want to feel like a bad person. So now they might deny, deflect, right? And if they unconsciously acted out in aggression towards me and then I brought it into their consciousness, it's still unconscious. So now they might unconsciously retaliate against me and I would never, and I would never know. So now if I confront the person, I have to ask myself, How much power do I have in this dynamic? How much power? Is this someone that that I have to work with? Is this someone who I need letters of rec for? Is this someone on the faculty who might be able to sort of subtly like turn the opinions of other faculty members and my mentor might be in the room? And oh no, my mentor's a white person too. So, So we have to think about power, especially in academia. There are no grad student unions, okay? Grad students do not have do not have enough power, and it's quite inappropriate, if you ask me. Um, so many of these situations happen, and then graduate students are taught to internalize a lot of things. Well, you need to be tougher. You need to da 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 da. Just this this culture of slugging it out, and then the moments of silence where we really uh, suffer due to that lack of of power. So it's a flex of power, and, and I'll. Um, the the last piece of this, we think about uh, race and race dynamics. So just think about African-Americans and and white folks, right? And this, um, again, being my my main specialty, these dynamics. Slavery, 
black people were taught that your emotions don't matter. Be seen and not heard when you're serving your master. And what does the master get to do? Take up as much emotional space as they want, right? So it's essentially like white folks are still taking up emotional space, right? And, oh, can I touch your hair? And, oh, like my reality, my opinion matters more than yours and da-da-da-da. So generationally speaking, they have learned that their opinions and feelings matter more, similar to men and women. Right. It's the same sort of dynamic. So it's a matter of taking up emotional space. So they take up this emotional space. Right. If you imagine it kind of like uh, someone, you know, pushing out their arms right in a situation and we have people like kind of stuffed against the wall. Like, can you like get up out of my space? It's not physical, though. It's emotional space. It's intellectual space. So when we feel that um, it, it gets very, very suffocating. Right. And they're unconsciously doing it on top of that as well. And a lot of people struggle when I say that, that they're, they're like, oh, they're doing it on purpose. Like, no, it's it's conditioning. And there's a lot of heavy emotion and shame, you know, behind that at times. You wonder why people get so defensive when you bring it up. So oh, I'm not a bad person. Oh, oh, oh. you know, you're a bad person. Uh, and, and it's right. And we have no K through 12 emotion, emotional intelligence training. Um in the US. I've seen it in the UK. I'm not sure if it was a private school or what, but yeah, just we don't have the tools to under, un, unpack oppression, unpack power, and unpack our emotions. Maybe that yeah. is something that we should introduce in academia because you also mentioned earlier that um, students are told to suck it up. And because of the hierarchy, they don't really have anyone to uh, to tell it to or to say what they experienced or how to deal with it. Um, also because they're told that this is normal and their supervisors have gone through it and their bosses have gone through it. So it's totally normal, but it's really a culture that needs change. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> then we're on the same line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's very easy. It's very easy to not process your pain maybe as a graduate student. Right. And then become a professor. And if you don't if you don't own it's either you own your uh, your shit or it owns you. So if you leave emotions unprocessed, you are going to act it out. You cry it out or you act it out. Right. So if I feel victimized and I never confront my victimization, then I'm going to victimize others to feel better to feel dominant, to feel in control. And I will do that unconsciously. So for folks listening that... Creating another dangerous situation. And detaching more from the harm that I'm causing. And then, you know, having power. And people say, oh, you can say anything you want. You know, this is open feedback. If you're a supervisor, if you're a boss, no, they cannot because you have power and they don't. And it's risky to say, oh, it doesn't matter how nice you are. You have power. It doesn't matter. Um, but yeah. Cool. Well, I think I do understand a lot more about, especially the things that are most important. And we touched upon certain things that are specific in academia. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm going to just cheer with my drink before I'm ready yes, to start yes. listening to the testimonials of our um, friends and audience. Cheers. Yes, yes. Cheers. What are you having? Mm. This is my coffee. 
I stopped drinking coffee for a while. Then I started again. Is that pandemic related or yeah. microaggression related? Uh, oh, it was it was pandemic related at first because my coffee machine broke at the beginning of the pandemic. Oh, no. I panicked. I saw a little bag of black tea that I had. I was like, hmm, let me try this. And I was like, oh, man, this is great. So I went on tea for a while. Well, yeah. And back to coffee it is. Back to coffee it is. <laughs> All right. So while you enjoy that, um, I'm going to... Um, have a listen to the first clip. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Ido, for having me today. My name is Lena Remikovac. I'm a PhD candidate and lecturer in indigenous literatures at the Department of North American Studies in Freiburg, Germany. As a white passing woman, I know that I do not face as many aggressions as my students and colleagues who are people of color, queer people, and or. But today I wanted to talk about disabilities and mental health in academia because that's the topic that's very dear to me. A few weeks ago, I was attending a workshop focused on inclusivity and diversity in an academic association I'm a member of. I don't want to give names, but I hope that, you know, maybe the people I mentioned will recognize themselves and reflect on their language and do better in the future. So what happened was a delegate was talking about the lack of support for mental health at their institution and also within the association itself. And they were sharing how their department was discriminating against them regarding the accommodations they requested. This person is dealing with mental illness and was asking for support. A member of the board interrupted them to insist that there were already two committees in place to evaluate such accommodations. And while explaining how this works, the board member made a joke about mental illness. And they joked about saying, I'm such a schizophrenic because they're a member of two different committees and have to assume two different roles from one to another. The other board members laughed at the joke, therefore validating the harmful stereotype. And then everybody continued like nothing happened. I checked in later with several colleagues and students with disabilities and or mental illness who were present, and they were all hurt and shocked. And that's why this event really stayed with me. I'm still thinking of contacting this board member and discussing the event with them, but I'm not sure how to approach the issue. Thank you, Danny and Ido, again for letting me share today, and thank you in all in advance for listening to me. Stay safe. So that was Lena's story. Thank you for sharing it with us. Um, and from what I understood is that not just one, but a few things happened there, right? Because not only was um, a problem perceived by one of the students dismissed, right? They, they just said, no, it's not a problem because we already have things in place to, to help you. Um, mm. And then they also laughed at um, mm -hmm. the struggles that this person already has and, uh, mm -hmm. and is suffering from, from mental issues. So yeah. what she, Lena also specifically mm -hmm. asks, what can I do in such a situation? The situation is obviously already passed. Mm -hmm. And what can I do mm -hmm. after? Like, is there still something she could do now? Yeah, this is tricky. Because right when I said before about power, it's all about power in these situations. So you can't exactly force people in power to self-reflect. You know, so if, if Lana needs any sort of support, maybe for, 
you know, a, a research study that she's doing or if, you know, if she needs if she needs uh, support or time off or her me- her mental health issues. Right um, now, she's unable to do that. And she sort of knows how they feel and they can take up all of that emotional space. And essentially, we can say and do whatever we want. That's what was taken away from me is that. And so that leaves people on the under other end feeling extremely powerless. So as far as what to do, there, there are a few things, you know, um, we can uh, try to gain allies. So if there are others who are safer within that organization to speak to people who you trust, and I mean, really trust, I don't mean kind of trust, I mean, really trust, um, you can tell them what happened, tell them how you felt about it. Um, and ask if there's there's any way that we can maybe do something. And you can even do that without disclosing your own mental health issues. You can sort of do that. You can say, well, I kind of took it like this. How did you take it? And and sort of reveal your hand without really revealing it and just seeing, okay, how far does this person see it? And then if they're like, no, well, not really, da 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 you have your answer, right? They're going to minimize as well. And if I tell them the truth, they might act out on me. So then it's, okay. You know, so we and it's messed up, you know, but I want Lena to be safe. I don't want her to say something, you know, get fired or be retaliated against. I'd much rather. um, And this is this is for myself. And, and, you know, my own uh, philosophy is um, is building coalitions and building power. That's really what it's about. So if that means reaching out to some sort of regulatory body. If there's a national, um, you know, in the, in the States, it's, uh, it's the APA. If there's, if there's a way to look at maybe guidelines or different things like that, or speak with a national organization about the issue in an anonymous sort of way, um, and then seeking, seeking their recommendations, you know, but, but I'd like to also dip back to, um, the, the great Malcolm X and, um, and Malcolm X, um, he was really, um, really misunderstood. I mean, one of the main things that Malcolm X uh, talked about was boundaries. It was boundaries. Why am I going to completely trust a system that's that's harming me? So we need to understand that, hey, maybe this board doesn't have my interests in mind, doesn't have my interest in mind. So to keep myself safe, if I want to feel free, if I don't want to have to deal with systemic issues like this, then maybe I need to move to a space and move to a job where I do feel safe. Because fighting that battle, it'll it'll it can eat away at you, you know. And I'm not saying you know you got to go quit right now, you know. But if you're a grad student, you know sometimes it's just about man, I just got to tough this out. But if you have control, if you can leave, if you're a faculty member. It start start looking around. You know, value alignment is very, very, very important. If you feel like you're working in a space that doesn't have that value alignment, then no, you can't change. You can't change them. When you see leadership act like that and that confident about it, um, I think you have your answer. Um, James, you know, the back a little bit to James Baldwin. Why would I? Why would I trust what you say when I see what you do? You know, and then further like, uh, oh, we're already doing these things. So, oh, well, you know, 
we uh, we chopped off your your foot, not your whole leg. So, you know, that's the that's the excuse, you know, and you they showed you who they were. So believe them. Right. And it's it's so strange, right? Because they probably had this meeting for people to express what it was they might need. And then mm-hmm. this person probably mm-hmm. experienced that as a safe place to come forward and talk about the problems that they had and the help that they would need. Mm-hmm. And then that's the response you get. And uh, from then on, we hear that, that she was shocked and she spoke to other peers and that they felt the same way, that it was really something that wasn't done. Mm-hmm. But then none of the people who were higher in the hierarchy, like other people on that board, didn't say anything. Um, nope. Which then already nope. shows to these other peers that even if they would step mm-hmm. up to them or talk to them about it, then they wouldn't mm-hmm. get any backup. Right? Yeah. You're not safe. You know? And that's where microaggression sufferers there, I think the the shift goes from I I'm safe to be myself and get my needs met to I'm not safe with everybody and not everyone will care about my needs. And that um a lot of folks might call that cynical. A lot of folks might say, Well, it shouldn't be that way, but really the word should shouldn't exist. Um, because it is. Reality is very direct with us. When reality uh, shows you something, then that's the way that it is. And we have to cope with that. We have to grieve that. Wow, I'm in a program. I'm in an environment where mental illness is, is laughed at. Wow, that's sad. That's let's just sad. grieve that. Yeah. yeah, let's just grieve it. Let's accept it. And when we see reality as it is, then we can interact with reality as it is. So it might mean, okay, you know what? If I don't want to feel this way, I'm going to have to change a job. If I don't want to feel this way, I'm going to have to maybe, if I'm a grad student, I'm going to have to make sure that I take care of my mental health um, and keep that to myself, right? It's boundaries. And that's when uh, I think sometimes the philosophy of Martin King uh, can sort of turn into ignorance sometimes when we're like, I should be able to say whatever I want. It's a free society. But then these things happen. And then you might need a little bit more of Malcolm was, hold on, hold on. You know, let me just go with my people. And I liked how she reached out to other folks in the program who saw that, right? Who's, okay, yes, I validate your experience. That was the great authority of Malcolm X. He was like, yo, look, I'm a black dude. I'm pissed. Room full of black people. Hey, we're pissed too. Okay, phew. Our reality is like real. Like this is like, okay. All right, I can see and validate myself and then I can love myself and not internalize that stuff. And a validating community is very, very important. Um, but also we have to strive to change the systems, right? So it's very much a both and. So talking know? about it is already in and of itself a very important thing to do. That's usually like the first step at least. With uh, that, yep, with validating others, with validating others because the other piece is people handle it differently. Um, so my dad, for instance, uh, he socialized me. He taught me that, you know, through his behaviors, through his modeling, you know, and this is this is a part of a racial socialization, uh, essentially having the talk about being being a, being a black man. And for him, he would always try to fight it every single time. He would document emails. He would submit all these things. He would 
be very, very direct, but he would always wait till he had enough power and then he would he would say something. But sometimes he would try to talk to other uh, black people in the same organization and some of them be like, well, it's not that bad or well, I don't know. So they handle it differently. So he, you can get invalidated by others in your community. And now what is that black person saying? Dude, this is super stressful. I don't want to think about it because if I think about it, it's going to bring me down. I don't want to have to fight. You know that it's a fear response, right? So some might be more about action. Others might be more about just like letting it slide and like and like not thinking about it and just moving past it. Right. So you need to figure out for yourself who's safe to talk to. Right. Who's going to validate the way you feel about it and who's going to validate maybe your solution and even a step further. Can you be in a space where you're both feeling the same way and validate the legitimacy of both solutions? Um, you know, so uh, this is an, sort of an interesting parallel, too, with um, with Martin versus Malcolm. It didn't really become a versus by the end of their lives. They saw that, oh, wait a second. We have the same goal of freedom. We just have different ways of going about it. And both ways are legit in their own right. We need to change systems. And we need to keep uh, the mental health uh, and self-love of black people safe, right? So it's it's always that same exact dynamic. I'm not just talking about black people. Uh, I'm talking about all oppressed identities. Um, there's always that, that gray area. Okay. Well, thanks for that. I think uh, we discussed quite a bit of what Lena was talking about. And before listening to the next story... I have to mention that the person related to this testimonial asked to remain anonymous. So we've asked our friend and host of the podcast, What the Fuckery, Nadaj August, to record it on their behalf. So here it is. Hello, my name is Jill. I am a non-binary person. I was assigned female at birth, living as female on paper, but openly non-binary. I'm in a master's in mathematics program, so my microaggression experiences relate to visits to my professor's offices for office hours in classes or for oral exams and for research projects. I am aware that I'm probably seen simply as female by most people who deal with me, but the first example is when professors open a conversation with me by comments on my appearance. Now, this is whether I wear a coat or I have a zit in my face, whether I dyed my hair. And that comment on my appearance always puts me on an uncomfortable foot straight off. They might also open conversations with obviously gendered comments such as, so nice to see two ladies waiting for me, etc., etc. It reminds me that they see my perceived gender, which makes me uncomfortable. But I am more offended by the appearance critique. The other thing is when professors, instead of critiquing how I can improve my writing, they go on tangents about how they think my confidence or shyness, always gendered, by the way, like they don't tell male students this. Because uh, the problems in my writing, which are actually caused by me thinking points are obvious, so not expending on them. I'm not shy. WTF. It can be very hard to get real feedback on my mathematics when I'm put on the back foot about my appearance and my personality. Neither of which is their business solely because of my perceived gender. 
Right, so here we have someone who really mm -hmm. had others dismiss their identity completely. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think your example earlier of the mosquito bites um, mm -hmm. really uh, are, are fit, a good fit in this story, in Jill's story. Um, because they get this all the time, over and over and over. And even though it might seem small, it really mm -hmm. is about the core of a person yeah and, it, and it's it's like you are you are slowly settling into the reality the great shock that this world isn't exactly made for you we have multiple things sort of going on here the first thing i noticed is a man um fixating on the physical appearance of what he is assuming a woman. So even if this person did, I didn't identify as non-binary and uh, identified with uh, their gender um, at birth, then still that would be super sexist and microaggressive, right? On one level. So first you have that piece of things, which um, it's a boundary, a boundary crossing. At that point, it doesn't matter what it's about. It's you're like not commenting on why I'm here. You know, so you're crossing my boundaries, talking about my physical appearance, even if you acknowledge me as instead of about the math. Right. Or they are trying to get feedback on. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so even if everyone knew and accepted that this person identified as non-binary and they still commented on their body, it's the same, you know, sort sort of thing. Um, it's it's a man saying, oh, I can like cross your boundaries and talk about your body, you know, and da 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 Well, no, that's like, uh, I don't know about other people, but that's kind of like for me and my partner to like discuss. Um, and that's a person like, what are you doing? So it's, it's power. It's the ability of men to think that they can just comment on women's bodies all they want and not talk about those things with, with men, uh, at all. And it, and it's also says something about how, uh, society values women. You know, um, so we, we think about, um, you know, the, the diet culture, you know, we, we look at these models walking down a runway. It's not that they're wearing clothes that are that are nice. What you're saying is these are the most beautiful women and this is what you should look like and da 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 rather than self-defining how you want your body to look like. And men get to then control that and dictate that and reinforce women you know, to maybe show, oh, you have a zit. Oh, now I feel bad about my zit. Maybe I'm going to now, you know, try these products to like, we see that level of control. Um, I just feel bad for this person, especially with the non-binary identity, because that's the extra layer. You know, I'm curious what, you know, I wish we had this person all right now. I'm curious, you know, what that extra layer uh, re really brought on for them. Right. If we had all of them here, we could ask so many more questions. But unfortunately, this is what we have to deal with right now. Yeah. Uh, and I think you said it very well uh, with the example of the runway. Um, but another thing to bring it back to academia, and that's where it's happening, mm. right? It's in the classroom or it's in the office of the professor. Uh, again, it's uh, uh, the senders, mm. the people who are doing it and sending out the microaggression, these are superiors. They are the supervisors, the professors, and that's the power again, right? Exactly. And that's where for this 
for this person, I heard the anger and I wanted to make a point about anger. You know, just any, any oppressed person, they're told by society to ignore, ignore those feelings of anger, of upset. Because if you ignore those feelings, then I get to keep victimizing you, right? This is where Malcolm X's philosophy and speeches on anger, anger is activating. Anger means a boundary was crossed and something must change, right? It's difficult when you don't have power. However, I, I enjoyed to hear that this person was, was activated. You know what, you know, WTF, hey, that's not okay. And owning that response. That's how you sort of work yourself out of the gaslight that, oh, this is okay. This is fine. This is normal, right? That's how abusers abuse, you know, being CEOs, this and that. But when you tune into the anger, you don't need to, you know, scream at the person head on. It might become a problem and you don't want to make your situation worse. That's always what you have to keep in mind, right? You want to get out of it better, not worse. Yeah. But then it's also, what's the issue in this situation? Is it this man or is it his conditioning? You know, and what I'd like to say to people is no one is bad, but there's bad conditioning. There's bad conditioning. So if I want to change that conditioning, where can I start? Other men are going to learn just like this and hurt other women. So how can I contribute to people's understanding about these issues, right? Or what ways can I contribute? Can I join an organization? You know, can I join a, you know, women, women in academia against sexism, you know, and that's where activism with right racial trauma, with, you know, any sort of oppress, oppress based uh, trauma, uh, the healing isn't just like dealing with my emotions, right? And, you know, working on the inside, it's also stopping the harm that's coming towards me. And to do that, I must change the systems. So in that way, academia or, or excuse me, activism is a form of healing. So for people who are struggling with where to put the anger, you know, put it into changing the systems. That's the only way it will it will stop or put it into helping your community. Right. And helping, you know, start a support group. For, you know, for nine non-binary folks, you know, in academia that, you know what I'm saying? Like do something and anger then becomes an energy that you can tap into and use. Like right now in this moment, um, I do this work because of watching my father suffer through this stuff. And there's great sadness and great anger with it. So I'm using that energy to and putting it into my work. It doesn't come off on as anger. It doesn't sound like anger, but it's energy. It's energy. And you can essentially, uh, the word is sort of transmutation. Uh, Sigmund Freud, one of the few things he got, right? Sublimation, putting our pain and taking it and letting it fuel, you know, our, our creative endeavors. And that's the other piece of this is you get to see society in a certain way. And you don't like it. You don't have to, you don't have to keep living like this your whole life, you know, collaborate with folks, you know, create a new world where people like you in the future don't have to feel that way. Because right now for this person, um, there's someone who's 
fit recognizing who's maybe 14 years old, recognizing that they identify as non-binary, you know, and they are, and they are love math and they were born, you know, uh, you know, signed, uh, female gender at birth. And, you know, how are you going to leave these systems for those people? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know, you have to keep yourself safe, but also how do you use that energy in a productive way to be to ensure it won't happen because like you said that issue with power we got to get the degrees we got to finish you know so this is actually eye-opening for me uh what you've just said because i was only thinking so far about what you can do in a certain situation when you're in it with the person who has just hurt you mm-hmm. um, but you can also mm-hmm. just Take that with you and use that energy for completely different things that might actually, on the long run especially, be more effective. So use that energy mm-hmm. for activism or being part of a group or things like that. So so mm-hmm. thanks for sharing. I think that's very important. We are going to listen to someone else now. We have uh, Rosalind, and this recording is done by Meredith Castles because Rosalind preferred to really share her story in a more anonymous way as well. So let's listen to the next one. Hi, my name is Rosalind and I'm doing a PhD in educational psychology. In one of my doctoral courses, we were discussing a reading and I was passionately going off on my thoughts and how it related back to my childhood. Made me think about how my mother acted in regards to her behaviour and how she would work constantly and that I often felt neglected. I was vulnerable in that moment, but felt safe to disclose those feelings as it pertained to the discussion. A newer student, who was also another newer graduate student, decided to respond back to me by asking where my child was and why wasn't I home with him. I responded by saying, at home with my husband, why does that matter? My classmates caught on to what he was insinuating and turned around to tell him he needed to stop and that it was unacceptable. Yes, not the adjunct teaching the course, the other grad students stuck up for me. I felt really supported by my classmates in that moment, who two of which were also mothers. I'm glad I had them there because I was furious and in shock that another graduate student would ask something like that. That said, the belief that women need to adhere to traditional gender roles was suggested during a doctoral class, and I still think about how we're still fighting stereotypical roles of women today. I think I'm going to take another sip of my drink because that's what I need right now. (laughs) I can feel the fury through that one. Oh, man. So again, we have the anger, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and now we also really have this issue of uh, the patriarchy mm-hmm. within academia still, even though we are mm-hmm. almost in 2021, mm-hmm. we're still uh, struggling with these things, as we are with all the other things we discussed, of course. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so here we have the stereotypes, and again, the issue of, of power, but... Um, what do you think about her response? She um, obviously was backed up immediately by peers who were also mothers mm-hmm. in the same situation. But, mm-hmm. for example, I could have been in that class, right? I'm a PhD mm-hmm. candidate and uh, I'm, I guess, a young woman, mm-hmm. let's say, <laughs> mm-hmm. without disclosing mm-hmm. my age. Uh, but I'm not a mother. So would I also have been able to do something? And she says mm-hmm. now she's already past that stage. Um, but she's still struggling knowing that these issues are still yeah. out there. So what do you think we could do? Well, first, it's accepting it's accepting what reality shows you. Sometimes I think the pain and the shock 
and we just keep like we have this subtle denial you know like oh that you know what i mean like oh i'm struggling with the fact that this exists that this can happen i feel unsafe right so um a, a big piece of this is what i sort of heard from her is i opened up in a space you know and i i shared and i was vulnerable okay so issue of boundaries right we talk malcolm right boundaries 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 i don't know how many people in here um how many people in here might uh, be acting out on their conditioning their sexist conditioning if i open up in this way and so now if we touch a stove and it's hot don't touch it again right be mindful and that's sad i don't like saying that but also i want this person yeah i don't want this person to be naive and i don't want them you know I, i don't i would rather this person walk on the path of understanding reality then I could say, okay, these issues are very, very serious. Um, but also there are other people out there that will stick up for me. Even if they're sticking their neck out, other people without power also feel the same way. Oh, wow. So there's kind of, we take the good with the bad and we see reality as it is. But the other thing is I cannot tell any person, you know, even if I, even other black males, I can't tell them how to respond to different things. All I can really say is when reality shows you what it is, then believe that because if you don't and you keep trying to open up in these situations and the same thing happens, right? Now you're hurting yourself. You're hurting yourself a lot, which sucks. Mm -hmm. Very sad. Very, very sad, you know, And, and that grief, when we lean into sadness all the way, um, you know, without fixating on it, but just feeling it without, you know, trying to push it away, there's this uh, bounce up effect. So when we feel emotions completely, then they become energy potential. So if I feel that sadness, I feel that rage, I feel it and I allow it and I breathe into it on the other end of that. Now there's compassionate action and we have to understand emotions. If I'm stuck looking at my anger, I don't see the other side of that. And the other side of that is I'm angry because I love myself and I don't want harm to come to myself. I'm angry because other women have to deal with this. And I and I and I want to keep other women safe. I want to make sure I mean, I don't know if this person with, with the gender of the child was, but if I have a, a daughter, I don't want my daughter like dealing with the world like this. So then instead of just seeing anger in our face, now we see Oh, I see what must be done. I see what must be done. And if I don't know what must be done, I need to get with my comrades and I need to figure out, okay, what can we do to change these ideas or to keep ourselves safe? So that same sort of Martin Malcolm sort of thing, change the systems at the same time as we're making sure we keep ourselves safe so we don't internalize these things and believe them, right? And, and that's that's hard. It is, but we should try, nevertheless. Exactly. Right. There's nothing else to do. There's nothing yeah. else. You know what I mean? You can't do nothing. <laughs> no easy way out. No. All right, but mm-hmm. this story is slightly different from the first two that we heard because uh, Rosalind was actually hurt by another student. It was another peer, right? So it was not actually a professor or someone with more power. So because that's the case, 
could she respond in a different way than if it would have been someone higher up? So, um, power, there's levels. There's levels. A, a white person in a dynamic uh, comes with more political power than me, even if they're on the same level, right? Even if they're on that same level. So I, I think that's tricky. I think that's really tricky because it's always about these numbers. It really, it really is that that kind of tribal, you know. So a man, so say this man in this in this situation, they confront him, and say he isn't receptive, and it's just like, oh well, I think you know women belong in this and that and whatever, right? So now this man, say he goes around the department and he starts talking about this or that about her or da 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 da. He's a man. He might be more believable, right? If if sexism and patriarchy, oh, well, what's what's the what's the old thing? Oh, well, she's crazy, you know, and da da da. Very steroid like ugh. So people. As long as no one says hysterical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, I tried to stay. I tried to take a step back from from that mm-hmm. with the c word, but so naturally people might be more receptive to believing that. Rather than believing, oh man, maybe this guy in front of me is actually a jerk, you know, because then that would mean that sexism exists and it's and it's here and it's in my face and that's, oh man, I don't know, that's uncomfortable, right? So I'm just going to believe that this man, what this man is saying about this person, um, and I know the same thing about being a black person, um, it's easier for people to see me as incompetent than actually believe what I'm saying, right? So it doesn't matter, you know, you know, power-wise, right? He can flex his power in other ways. But, you know, further, you know, there's a huge bystander effect here, you know, with the professor who didn't say anything. Right. So that might have, yeah, so he might as well have just, yeah, he might as well have just agreed with, you know, your silence is essentially uh, an agreement. You know, with what happened, and it can be taken that way. Say for that young man, he's like, "Oh, I guess my professor like thinks I'm right, huh? I guess I'm right. These women are just being crazy." Okay, mm-hmm. and he goes along with his day, right? And that's that's why it's very, very important. And who knows what this professor thought? Maybe he did agree, but then for for her, what if you? What she's like? Does he agree? Does the professor agree? Do they not? Now she feels unsafe mm-hmm. with this professor, right? Keep keep yourself safe. You know, there there's a lot of nuance, and I think it's tricky. I can't tell everyone exactly what to do but i can essentially explain here are the things that are potentially at play that could or could not happen which is which is quite frightening the ambiguity you know the ambiguity and the fact that there are so many layers of power so we're not only talking Mm. about the obvious one in academia with uh, supervisors professors and everyone above that but also those that take place everywhere else in society um, mm-hmm. So that's that's tough because it all overlaps. Yeah, and being and being a mother, right? And oh my goodness, that's there. There's a lot, a lot packed in there, and different layers can come up in different different moments. And you even talk about class, right? What what class is someone coming from a blue collar background, and is everyone else coming from more white collar? Um, that that's that's another layer. Right, so then we're touching upon uh, the environment maybe a little bit. And this is something I spoke about with uh, our producer, Ido. 
you know, there's there's obviously also anti-Semitism in the world and there's a lot of mm. Jew jokes, mm. right? Um, but I experience those very differently when I am in mm. Israel, where I'm studying right now, mm. and where I would hear them if I'm in Europe, where I'm from. Um, so it also really mm. depends on what kind of situation you're in when the mm-hmm. microaggression happens, right? Mm-hmm. Context is king or queen. <laughs> um, or royalty, non-binary. Yes, That's I like the best that. Let's take the gender out of it. There it is. Context is is really everything. And so um, now I'm gonna how do I put this diplomatically? Microaggression trainings which say don't say this to people or say this instead of that. That is that is assuming blanket rules in a stable context. If the context is constantly shifting, there's no one response for the receiver of the microaggression, which will work in every single situation or have the desired effect, or on the sender. So someone listening to this like, oh crap, I don't want to commit microaggressions. There's no one situation or one phrase that they do this or do that. That's the problem with microaggression training because it's a, it's more about your moment-to-moment awareness. So when I'm teaching uh, on how to cope or how to not send them, I'm preaching mindfulness and attention to the present moment. If you're trying to rely on, you know what I mean, I learned this in this microaggression training, to not say good job to you know ethnic minorities in class because that can be taken as a microaggression, well, what if everyone's different, right? This isn't, you know, the, the racial groups are not homogenous. So then maybe someone and people aren't homogenous. So maybe someone in the room is like, well, why don't, why'd you say good job to them, but you didn't say good job to me, right? And then if you say, hey, good job, like really, really great presentation, you know, great, really, really well spoken or da da da, someone might take that as, oh, oh, you think like, um, oh, why are you saying that? Are you saying, is it? So it's, it's moment to moment and, and it's understanding body language. It's paying attention and things like that when you're in power and you say something and someone sort of shuts down. And then if you say, oh, hey, what's wrong? Now you're crossing their boundaries, right? So it's sort of learning to sit back and moment to moment clean up after yourself, you know, moment to moment. And it's so contextual. It really, really is. Um, yeah. Every moment is different um, and every person is also different. Like you said, with the body mm. language, you have to keep every aspect in mind. Mm-hmm. Every single one. You know, I um, when I'm receiving, I tend to get more quiet. I don't, I don't contribute. I'll like still be in the situation and I'll be like nodding. And what I want, and this is my own style, what I want is for them to feel a little uncertain about what I'm thinking. So I, that's my attempt at sort of pulling the power back a bit and now here you are trying to, you know, explain yourself or you're trying to say, well, you know, we just kind of do things here like this. And I'm like, oh, OK, we'll say more, say more. I play dumb and I just here. No, no, no. Here. Why don't you keep explaining your logic? Because both of us know that, like, this isn't making much sense, but you're not really sure. and I'm not giving anything to you because I don't trust you, you know, and, and that's that. And I'm going to keep myself safe. And yeah, if I end up leaving this organization then you'll get it in an exit interview that I'm going to type up and I'm going to write at the end 
no further comments or questions. Don't talk to me about this. I'm not, I'm not going to contribute, right? Because now you no longer have power over me. So, yeah, but everyone has to have their different style. What works for them, you know? It's the trick. All right. And also, I'm not, I'm not a woman. I'm not non-binary, right? That's what everyone's got to figure out. Yeah, yeah. All right. On that note, <laughs> we have another one ready. Uh, and this is a story and a testimonial by Suparna. Hello. I'm a researcher researching on multiculturalism. I was participating at one research event in my university. Of course, as an early career researcher, I was a little nervous about it. After my presentation, an elderly man who was a member of the audience approached me and behaved rather in a strange manner. He said he hasn't seen any dearth of cultural diversity in the city where I'm researching and through his body language and words, he expressed his feeling of how unnecessary my research was. He then went on getting a bit personal. He started asking about my family. Slowly, he asked me my kid's age, my husband's profession, etc. When he knew my son was applying to universities, he said I was too young to be a mother of an almost university goer. I took it as a compliment without trying to postmortem everything that he said. On my return, I decided, I described actually my whole day to my family, including my interaction with the elderly man. My son said that, Mom, you didn't get what he was saying. He was just trying to be sarcastic and a bit racist. He was actually indicating that you were possibly a child bride and married very, very young, which you actually didn't, Mum. I was taken aback, firstly by my son's maturity, which I lacked, at least at that very moment, when I was so busy and flanked by so many people who were interested to know about my research. Then, as I recalled how critical and negative he was, I feel that his statement, his body language, and the shrewdness with which he said this to me, it was rather racist. At the event, I also met another elderly man and others who were appreciative of and interested about my timely topic of study in the background of the BLM movement. Now, having said this, I would also like to say that while the critical race theory was started in the United States by people from ethnic minorities and it later extended worldwide, in my university, I do see very less enthusiasm among the so-called affluent, successful people from ethnic minorities. Be it the students or the workers, the employees. It seems that they are neither a part of the Race Equality and Diversity Commission of the university, nor are they interested to be. I do not see them attending these meetings ever. It is mostly the people from the majority community, yes, you know, the whites, who initiate and lead these meetings on behalf of the minority. So you see, while I admit that there are microaggressions that people from ethnic minorities face even now 
there is the other side of the story as well which needs to be unpicked thanks as this testimonial is a bit closer to your specific expertise on on race and trauma um what do you think about her not having realized in the start and really until her son told her that she was being discriminated against yeah um so i'll dip into to freud a little bit here another one of the things he was um a few things he was he was definitely right about if something is uncomfortable we sort of explain it away we don't want to believe something so we essentially deny it in the moment um because think about it if you know i'm at a busy conference and this and that likely there's way more white people here than not so i'm already sort of like okay like please no discrimination please i don't want this right then that sort of happens and then you oh he didn't mean it that way and he's it's ambiguous so if it's ambiguous you can choose to believe it in another way um unless someone says hey n word right unless someone says that you don't really you you can you have that opportunity to explain it away explain away something that's uncomfortable right but if you can explain it away and you continue to explain it away you might take a job where you're being microaggressed against and you wake up and you're like why is my self esteem so low why am i doubting my research and like that right so emotional avoidance avoiding emotion that is actually harmful right serves well in the moment but then if we never feel those things then we know Uh, then we don't know to like not work in spaces like that we become numb to it so we can't use our emotional intelligence and our intuition in those moments and that and that happens a lot for folks cuz think about it if we have to emotionally process every microaggression that comes up we'll be exhausted so in that way dissociation um uh, denial uh, avoidance that can be a very useful coping tactic right people say like oh don't avoid don't avoid don't avoid and we'll hear that in in clinical psych you know all the time um but if you're a person of color if you're on the receiving end of a, of a microaggression any oppressed group avoidance can a lot of times save you because these uh, social systems and social structures um are ready made to allow and even reinforce behavior like that so no i'm not going to unpack my emotions and confront each situation because that's exhausting and the system is stronger than just one person right so that for her what i saw was some emotion regulation by just denying rationalizing right um in the moment and but then you know luckily her son um you know brought that up so she can sort of see that and cope with the very real realities that there will be people in the field of psychology in the field of you know wherever that will devalue any work trying to uplift uh racial or ethnic minorities you know um you know racism is to me more so broken down to anti-blackness um anti-darkness in a sense so dark-skinned people being seen as not as, not as important uh not as human um different things like that and that is just baked within the culture um because things like slavery and you know genocide of certain populations you know um that stuff did not happen that that long ago um so we can see a lot of these behaviors and for the Jew Jewish community as well right um we can see the behavior still here and still strong um because we as as a as a world as a globe um you know i think they were in liberia uh they found out there was you know slave tra- trafficking going on of, of africans um 
this was as soon as like about a year ago I, I read something like that so it's it's still it's these are the realities and we want to avoid these things to be emotionally comfortable um, and it makes sense but luckily this person had the space um, and family support to say hey that was messed up we're here for you you know and you can and you can process this with us um, yeah yeah she also went on to say that uh, at our university there actually is a space to discuss these things and there's boards on diversity and inclusion but that yeah. she seems to to miss mm -hmm. people there from ethnic yep. minorities and different backgrounds than the whites yeah. as she as she called yes. it right um yeah. and then my question after listening to this the first time was actually going to be would do you think it really helps if if more of them would is that the way to stop microaggression well here well here it is here it is um and this is sort of the other side of things right because i used to ask that exact same question why is there not more advocacy right but then when then when you're you know so you, you grow up so to speak you get your phd and now you're around other phds and now they can tell you about their early career experiences number one when I am talking about a social issue that personally affects me and I'm speaking about that to other, a lot of other white people, I'm essentially opening up my trauma and I'm sharing and I'm being vulnerable with you, right? So when you do this work, you're essentially dipping into your own trauma and you're co-signing, okay, I'm okay talking about my own trauma so that it doesn't happen to other people here. But also what these faculty members might understand is that, hey, I've gone to those things before and I've tried to say things like behind the scenes and in public, nobody listens, it doesn't change, right? So you have a bunch of, so you essentially have an, a university which is refusing to get an outside consultant to come in and audit you because think about the, the minority faculty they still don't have as much power. They don't have as much power. And there's uh, essentially um, a lot of people in the U.S. right now um, identifying as persons of color leaving academia for this reason. Um, there, You want me to study. You want me to. And I saw this on a Twitter post the other day. Um, I wish I knew who it was. I shout him out. But it was academia says we want you to study structural racism and, uh, you know, and all of these things. Right me calls out actual racism and structural racism in the department academia no not like that right that's what it is not what they wanted to hear exactly and, and further they will ask you to be on diversity committees and clean up the diversity in you know in the whatever they won't pay you any extra right they won't pay you any extra for just the daily task of it number one Number two, they're also asking you to hold the racial trauma of other students who might be coping with this stuff. Then they might also ask you to hold the racial trauma of telling white people in your place of business who can, who are on boards, who might control tenure, promotions, all that. You want me to go in there and tell a bunch of white people how I really feel like behind this like code switched mask all day and you're not even going to pay me and you're not going to even assure my safety in that you're not even gonna you know so that's a lot to ask so you're 
from a student. It is a lot. Right? We're talking about people doing their PhDs, postdocs who are in their early careers. That's a lot. Right. Even late in their careers, even late, you know, so, um, you know, my dad, he had a lot of energy and a lot of passion. You can kind of hear, hear that in me too. So some people are just more built for, for fighting, you know, and, and moving through in those spaces and other people, they're just like, you know, you know, dude, I just want to freaking just do my research and, and if you all want to like uproot racism in your institution, there's such a thing as diversity consultants. Go pay money and stop trying to like work on this thing without actually investing any resources in it. If you want to do a resource, a research study, you're asking for millions of dollars, but you want to uproot systemic racism, which has been going on since the dawn of time. I think you're going to need some money for that. Yeah. And there are consult- consultation firms out there. So get serious about it. And a lot of institutions, they don't invest the funds. And then that leaves, number one, the faculty members are going to hurt. But then further, then, like, what about the people, like, you know, the people like uh, like this person, you know, who who is getting more hurt and has less power? So this person, I would suggest for them, go reach out to those faculty members, um, the ones that you trust, and just ask them what they think about, hey, what about this event? You know, like, have you been to one? Like, I guess, how do you see university like at this place? Start asking questions and see what they think. Then go to another faculty member and ask them the same question. Like, do your research, gather the data and understand. But on the other side of graduating, these are the things that you have to face. If you're in an academic environment with predominantly white folks, um, you are still at risk of losing your job, which is why I'm not in academia. I do consultation work. I do workshopping. Right? I do I do speaking arrangements. So when I show up to talk about race, I get to put it exactly as it is. And I'm saying it in a way that is undeniable. And it also, I say essentially what the faculty members there can't say or they might lose their job. So I'm like, okay, white people, like, here's what it is, you know, da 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 da. Okay, see ya. Bye. Go, like, go work on yourself. Like, this is what it is, you know, but that's, you know, that that's the only way that I've sort of figured out. That's my sort of way, but... So it's not simply up to Suparna by herself to start uh, as an activist, but definitely also something that needs to come from those institutions and uh, universities to change. Yep, but they won't, though. And this is the sad part. This is the sad part. You know, you say, hey, we need to invest money in this. We need to get an outside consultant to audit our practices, all of them, and get a report and address the things that the expert in diversity says we should address. And in academia, well, if someone has an expertise, we should listen to them. I have an expertise in ADHD, so blah, 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 blah. So we should do that, da, da. But when it comes to diversity, when it comes to issues of oppression, all of a sudden it's like, well, the camera can't see itself. You know, institutions cannot correct themselves because they're the ones doing that, uh, causing the issues. Right. That it doesn't work that way. So I think that's one of the main things is giving up power, giving up control. But these very powerful institutions refuse to do so, because then it would mean that I would have to address my own bias, my own racism, my own sexism. Now it's more personal. Now we're talking about how you might cause harm to people, how you might hurt people. And that brings up feelings of shame. 
People don't want to feel shame. There's no K through 12 emotion regulation. We don't teach, we don't equip people to deal with emotions. So when difficult things come up, we avoid them. We avoid them. It hurts everybody. You know what I'm saying? And this avoiding, this sounds a lot like what we're going to hear in the in the next talk, in which uh, Anna um, had an experience. Hi, my name is Anna. I'm from Costa Rica. I live in China for the last three years. Two of them has been doing my PhD. The microaggressions I am generally receiving in daily basis is mostly their need to try to make me like them without having any self-care, any mental health. It's not actually like common for them, even if they have families, especially male, you can see them working all the time. They don't really spend time with their families and they can spend like time away, like long time because all that matters is working and um, just work and get money. That's it. They get mad if you don't work all the time, even if you're not earning as much as them. Is Maybe it's because of the big competition they have to raise during their lifetime to reach any of the spaces in the academia or industry. And they have to start studying and working since they are really young. But still, I don't like how they just approach to me. They don't like confrontation, so they're not going to directly tell me something. They will tell someone to tell someone to tell me, or everyone is going to talk about it, but nobody is going to directly come to me and saying, like, okay, Anna, you're making a mistake, or you should not do it like this way. They are scared of making mistakes. And so it gets quite difficult sometimes to understand because they say, I ask, it's everything is uh, okay? Do I need to do this? How do I do this? And they say it's okay. And then I realized they were talking on my back, saying like, no, I'm not doing it correctly. And... I had this argument and I he keep telling like my PI in this case, I understand their gestures. It's easy to understand even if you don't speak the language, you just need a little bit of context and you know what they are talking about. Especially if you are with them, the longer you are with them or if you are in a closed space, it's very easy to know what they are talking about. And if you know some of the words. Then, uh, last time I was in a field work. And this professor, she didn't tell me anything if I was doing something wrong. But she was explaining to another student. And he, she was like, okay, don't do this. You see like how she's doing? Don't do like this. Do it like this. But for me, it was just a fact like, okay, you're talking shit about me in front of me and it's not the first time I keep continuously dealing with them 
doing this kind of things. That's an example. And it's frustrating. It's like, I understand what you're saying, but you cannot tell me directly. This is not, uh, you're not doing it correctly. Also, it gets very lonely here because nobody wants to talk to you. Or mostly because your, their English is limited and they don't like to make mistakes. Or they don't want to be friends with the foreigners. It's hard if you know, like, they don't talk to you, but they're seeing what you're doing all the time. So they're kind of controlling you and they're trying to push you to do like to work all the time like they are working. But it doesn't make sense because I submit the same quantity of results like we, we had the same results. Sometimes it's more frustrating for me because I have to follow more rules that they have to follow and still they think I'm not doing my proper work or I'm not doing enough. And they don't care if you're productive or not. It's just say here, exist. Like they are doing, like you cannot have a life because they cannot have a life. They don't actually like having a life. So it's like I cannot be you and I'm older than most of them. So for me, it's like I really don't care and I prefer to have enemies. I don't, I think enemies is like too much, too strong. Maybe like not have any friends here, but I take care of myself. And for them, if they want to work all the time, it's okay for them. I don't judge, but they should not judge me either. So it's quite complicated sometimes because the, when you see like this kind of microaggressions, when you feel judged, you don't feel supported, you actually try to be friendly, to be nice, but then you lose motivation, you lose actually interest of being nice to them. Or even like you try to look at them directly and sometimes they say hi or they just like move away. Not because they don't like, don't fully dislike me. It's just they don't want to talk to me. That's different. And well, sometimes it's funny. Other times it's a little bit annoying, but it makes you feel lonely. I have noticed because of this rivalry they have, and they have to compete with all the rest to get their positions. They can, they don't have this loyalty other people have, or I may have. It's more like, if they can push you down so they can look better, they will do it. But it's not because it's bad intentioned. It's because of uh, this competition mindset. So... Well, I think it's like my background in social sciences had helped me to understand a lot about them, to not judge, and to try to understand like how their man's mindset, their behavior is resulting of all their culture. Because if I try to take this, or I even had taken any of this personal, uh, I will not be here. It's too much. 
Wow, so here it seems like she really had everyone against her. Not only mm -hmm. peers, but also supervisors. And again, it's like you said, the context is uh, so much more than maybe the actual words that someone speaks because mm -hmm. uh, they didn't say it in English, but she kind of understood that they were talking about her mm -hmm. behind her back. And this is, um, in terms of uh, ethnic identity development, this sounds like a person who's higher up higher up on that space. You see how she unpacked it um, and understood it? And I like how she noted the understanding in social sciences. So if you can understand it, then you don't have to internalize it. And I think that's the, that's the big piece in this situation is that she knows, hey, this is the same quality of work. They're like talking crap, but they like won't say anything. So she's not like, oh crap, am I like doing that? Like, so that questioning, that gaslighting, um, that's where it'll get you. So um, a lot of people say, well, dang, you shouldn't have to feel like you can't have friends, you know, and da 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 da. And so then they'll try to be friends with people who will hurt them, right? So then in this situation, that's healthy boundaries. That's healthy boundaries. And I had to figure uh, this out for, um, for myself. And I remember once when a supervisor was trying to get me to diagnose uh, an African-American male with a really intense disorder that for myself, I was like, well, no, that's kind of normal for black men to act that way in this context, you know, in, in this context, this makes sense. So I was struggling at that time with which way do I go? Do I buy into what this person is saying and doubt what I know? And I remember that day I went home and I was just feeling the same feelings, alone, feeling like, man, who am I in relation to this system? Like, da, da, da. And then I just popped in familiar music, um, you know, something that was culturally uh, familiar to me. It was to the rapper Nas. Um, I'm about 30 minutes outside New York City. Nas is from Queens. Um, the feeling is very familiar. And then as I listened, I was like, oh, yeah. This is who I am outside of academia. And I think for this person, um, I loved how boundary they were. They were like, you know what? I'm not going to look for friends. I'm just going to put my head down, finish, and then it is what it is. They are who they are. I don't have to try to change them. You know, they already showed me their hand. It is what it is. But how can I make sure that I take care of me and mine? You know, and for this person, I would encourage is making sure that you remember who you are. So not just being boundaried, you know, against that, but also uh, partaking in your culture. Right. So when I'm like, you know, when I'm just talking to friends, I'm talking to other black people, you know what I mean? It's it's a different it's different style, different feeling, like different music da, da, da. when you take off that mask on the end of the day from like pretending to be a white person or pretending to be like an acceptable woman or like whatever it is to keep yourself safe. It's just a reality. You take that mask off and you make sure that you give yourself your authentic self space to breathe where you can just be yourself. Talk on the phone to people that that are culturally familiar so you can just be authentic. You need to remember to take it off and leave there. Okay. And then once you get that degree, you have to remember, all right, like, how can I get a job where I get to take that mask off more often than not? Right. Because sometimes it won't be perfect. Right. But I think we have to remember to take care of our mental health 
by having authentic personal relationships, authentic personal, culturally familiar relationships to remember who we are. So then when we step into those spaces. That's what you did eventually, right? Like what you're doing now, like you have found that place where you can take off the mask. Exactly. And, you know, with, with uh, to me, because being authentic about this work is most important. So starting a racial trauma clinic, I'm looking around. I'm kind of like, uh, like even some black academics are they are they are looking to heal communities that don't trust them through a system that that seeds that that sows the seeds of that distrust, you know, um, so larger university systems, the hospital systems, um, racial ethnic minorities may not trust those systems. Right. So we can't go in there acting you know, how we were trained exactly. We need to find a way to be authentic and still be experts. Um, that's that's really the way. And whether that's the way or not, you know, fine. I'll, I'll figure out if that's not the way. But I'm not going to keep using these systems which cause harm and expecting other people to trust these systems because the diagnostic, diagnostic system even does harm when it comes to racial trauma because it's not an individual disorder. Um, society is disordered. Society is disordered. You're not going to tell me that I'm sick and I'd have an ailment and illness that I must get rid of. No, society fix your damn self. You know, that's it. And that and that's some revolutionary shit right there. That's not that's a more that's more activist product. Right. So I said to myself, well, if I want to do this the right way, you know, then I'm going to I'm going to see the creative vision through. And um, I'm just thankful that I have that I have collaborators and um, and people that feel and think the same ways that, that I do. Um, and then the people that don't are still willing to collaborate, you know, and I'm still willing to lift up other people and lift up their work too. Um, so there's, there's more than one way, you know, but if you have a, if you have a belief, you know, if you have a feeling, you have to learn how to have conviction within your own space. Once you have conviction, gaslights, different things like that. Um, it makes it very, very hard for those things to enter into your consciousness. And you just got to find that space for yourself. And, you know, don't be afraid to do something different, you know? Well, thank you so much, Roderick, for joining us today, for all your tips and advice and for helping us understand microaggression and that it's not necessarily a problem of the person who's receiving it, but definitely of the sender and the part of society they're from. Um, so thanks so much for... I have learned a lot today. And I'd also like to thank uh, Nadash August from the podcast What the Fuckery, who inspired us to make this special episode on microaggression in this particular format. And we can recommend listening to What the Fuckery, and you will find a link to her podcast below wherever you're listening to this episode from. And if you want to learn more about Broderick and what he does, then you can find it on his website, also in the link below. And of course, a special thanks to Lena, Rosalind, voiced by Meredith Castles, to Barna, Jill, and Anna for sharing their stories with us. Yes, thanks so much for having me. And um, and yeah, the, this has been awesome. I hope it's been uh, enlightening. Um, and for listeners, you know, get, get creative. You know, <laughs> I'm only trying to shine a light on the path, but you got to walk it. You got to make new paths, you know, think, think for yourself. And um, let's, let's make the world a better place.